0: Our scripture today is from John chapter 8, verses 3 through 10. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: I think maybe we won until verse 11. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> um, Yeah, I guess we'll get to that. I'll tell you what happens. Uh, Jesus asked, did anyone condemn you? But first, I want to tell you about Monday. Monday was a really beautiful day, and I took off from my house in the late afternoon on a bicycle ride. Now, I live near the top of a hill, which means that the first half mile of my ride toward the bike path is all downhill, like really downhill. Like, I can get up to 30 miles an hour if I try. On Monday, as I pedaled off from my house, I thought that I heard a car behind me, and so I turned my head, and sure enough, there was this white SUV coming down the block up behind me, and then I turned the corner, and as I accelerated out of the corner, and I was enjoying the sunshine and anticipating the miles ahead, I was cruising down the middle of a quiet neighborhood street, and all of a sudden, the white SUV passed me really close, closer than I would have liked, closer than I thought was safe. He passed me, and then he slammed on his brakes and pulled into a driveway as I flew by him. I was incredulous. This guy just buzzed me on an empty neighborhood street so he could pull into a driveway two houses later. I bet he saved three seconds off of his drive by doing that. So I stopped, (laughs) and I turned around, and he saw me, and he got out of his car already yelling. He was so angry, so angry that I was not riding to the far right of the road so that he could get past me. You knew I was there, he said. You knew it, and you didn't get over. Next time, I'm going to hit you. I did not take that news well. (laughs) I argued back. He yelled some more. Realizing we were getting nowhere, I said, I'm sorry I ruined your day, which is a sort of kind of not really apology, right? (laughs) He yelled, you didn't ruin my day. I said, well, you seem really angry to me. He told me that he rides bicycles. I said, well, then you know how it feels to get past too close. He said, I gave you plenty of room. I said, well, you scared me. You scared me. And then he told me, no longer yelling now. Just go on about your ride. And he dismissed me with a wave of his hand. You guys, it was a really stupid encounter. Two people at odds with each other for not any good reason at all. But you know what happened. As I rode, I continued arguing with him in my head. (laughs) And then I realized how dumb it was, and I tried to talk myself out of the the argument. I I told myself, Amy, he made more trouble for himself being that mad than he made for you. I told myself, you do not want a neighbor that mad at you because you got to ride down that street pretty much every time you ride your bike. I told myself I had no idea what kind of day he was having or why he was in such a hurry. I told myself I needed to let it go. And I managed to. I went on to think about other things, and I had a beautiful ride on Monday. Then yesterday was another beautiful afternoon. I didn't see him again. Don't worry. I didn't see him again. (laughs) But as I rode past his house, I immediately thought of Monday's confrontation. And all of a sudden, I was arguing with him again all over in my head. I was wishing that someone would come and explain to him the three-foot passing rule. Law, it's not even a rule, it's a law. And how his anger at me on Monday was completely pointless. And then I pedaled a little farther, ruminating on how right I was and how wrong he was. And suddenly I realized, oh, look at yourself, smarty pants preacher. You are preaching on forgiveness tomorrow. (laughs) I can't even forgive a stranger who yelled at me five days ago. God, Jesus, he just confronts me so much. So I want to say up front this morning that forgiveness is hard. It's hard. I'm struggling to forgive somebody that I don't even know for something insignificant. When we get hurt or wronged by some, someone who's important to us, Or in a way that really matters, forgiveness, it can feel like climbing Mount Everest. And if we had to do it by ourselves, if we had to do it of our own accord, if forgiveness were all up to us, it would be nearly impossible. But you know, it's not just up to us. Forgiveness is actually a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift that God gives to us, both to the offender and to the offended. In our scripture for today, the the gift of forgiveness is what's on full display. And I think this encounter with Jesus has to rank in the top 10 of well-known Bible stories, or at least the thing that Jesus says to the accusers is widely known. You who are without sin, you cast the first stone. We're spending time here in the season of Lent talking about face-to-face encounters that Jesus has with various people in the Gospel of John. Two weeks ago we talked about how Nicodemus came to him at night and then last week Jesus had this kind of random encounter with a woman at the well. Well today the person that Jesus meets she doesn't come of her own accord. She's brought there by a group of religious leaders and they're trying to entrap Jesus into saying something he shouldn't say. The setting is Jerusalem in the temple courtyard And we can assume that the leaders are trying to get Jesus to to say something embarrassing or say something theologically scandalous so they can use it against him somehow. It's like they're doing opposition, opposition research. The woman in the story, she's just a prop in their little game. Now, it seems that she had sex with someone she should not have. He was otherwise married or she was otherwise married or both. We don't know. Adultery was very serious business in ancient Judaism. Well, adultery is very serious business now, isn't it? It causes all kinds of heartbreak and trauma. But in the ancient Near East, when marriages were more about property and family interests than they were about love, adultery was a serious legal violation, and the penalties were very harsh. I want to tell you just the relevant passages from Old Testament law that apply here. Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with a married woman, committing adultery with a neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be executed. Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found having sex with a woman who is married to someone else, both of them must die. The man who was having sex with the woman and the woman herself. Not a lot of wiggle room in those. If someone is caught in adultery, the death penalty is appropriate, according to the law code. Did you notice, though, that in both cases, the law starts out with if the man is found or if a man commits? See, the law here is focused on protecting men's property, in this case, someone's wife. So it's the other man who's the primary actor, not the property, the woman herself. And in both law scriptures, it's clear that the penalty applies to both the man and the woman involved. And yet, in our story, the religious leaders only bring one person to Jesus that day. They bring just the woman. Where was the man? She was caught, they said, in the very act. So they know who else was involved. But she alone is to be punished. I suspect she was easier to dehumanize. She was easier to make as an object for debate and discussion rather than seeing her as an actual human with feelings, motivations, fears, regrets. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't say anything. He bends down and he begins to write on the ground, which I have always thought was a little weird. I mean, what does that mean? What's he doing? Well, professor and expert on the Gospel of John, Gail O'Day, who happened to teach at the very best seminary in the country, Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, Georgia, she says (laughs) that Jesus writes on the ground to indicate his unwillingness to engage their question. What he writes is not important, she says. The scribes press him because they understand his act of writing is a refusal. It's not an answer. And Jesus stands up then, and he doesn't answer their question. Even then, he calls into question the accuser's relationship with the, with the law. So maybe we could think about it like this. This would make more sense to us. When they ask Jesus to condemn the woman, it's like he pulls out his phone and starts surfing on Facebook, okay? <laughs> He's saying, not interested in this. They keep pestering him. And he answers him. He says, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, if you are so concerned with the letter of the law, let the person who has kept the law perfectly be the one to judge, convict, and punish her. After he lays down that challenge, Jesus goes back to his Facebook feed, or writing on the ground, and all the accusers slink away. And then there's this incredibly powerful moment when Jesus finally speaks directly to the woman and we hear her voice. And this was the the verse that we didn't go on to read. Jesus stands up again and he says, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And Jesus releases her. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and from now on, do not sin again. Now Jesus knew the law. He understood that this woman was in deep trouble, that she had done something she shouldn't have, something that hurt other people or hurt herself or she herself had been hurt by it. But he wasn't there to bring punishment and death. He came to do the opposite. He came not to end life, but to give life. He came to set people free, not bind them in chains. Jesus came to open up the future, not condemn people to their past. It's not that he says what she did didn't matter. It matters to him. He tells her, don't do it again. He refuses to condemn her, though, and instead he wants her to be changed. He wants her to leave from this place differently, to leave from it free. The others, they they just wanted to condemn and punish. But Jesus, he wanted to forgive. He wanted to set free. And and this small story is an incredibly clear picture for us of what Jesus' entire life and death and resurrection were about. I think whenever we read this story, we're invited to imagine ourselves in it in whatever way we need. Whatever sin we have hanging around our necks, whatever thing we've done in the past that feels like a weight we can't shake, we're invited to imagine Jesus saying to us, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And just like that, Jesus wipes the slate clean for us like Pastor Rebecca's giant eraser, and sets us free from the weight of the past. Jesus doesn't hold our worst moments against us. Instead, he invites us to embrace a forgiveness that comes without price and look instead to a future of freedom and wholeness and holiness. Which is amazing and life-changing. You know, the forgiveness that we receive from God, it sounds too good to be true, but it really is that good. It really is that full and that complete. All we have to do is receive it and believe it and embrace it. God's forgiveness really is right here for us, and God gives it to us because God loves us. And God wants us to live in the future as people who are redeemed and forgiven and free. There's an additional challenge in this story, not only to claim forgiveness of Jesus, that Jesus offers to us, but to realize that he's offering that same forgiveness to everyone else around us, and he's inviting us to embrace forgiveness for others as well. I I imagine this scene, I see the religious leaders approaching Jesus, dragging this woman behind them, and I imagine that each one of them has like a heavy stone in their hand, and they're kind of bouncing it up and down in their hand as they talk to Jesus, just itching to hurl it at their victim. And then Jesus challenges them, says, assess yourself in the light of the purity of the law. And I imagine their silence and them looking down on the ground and as the words of the Torah fill their minds and they're each convicted of their own mistakes, their own sins, one by one I I see their hands open. And the stones they'd been ready to throw just drop to the ground as they turn and walk away. Jesus is inviting us to receive forgiveness that he offers and to drop the stones that we are carrying for others. Which is what I need to do for that guy that yelled at me on Monday. I need to ask God's help to drop the stones in my hand and receive the gift of forgiveness for him. Again, that bicycle encounter, that was small potatoes. Though I think when we practice forgiveness in small ways, it makes us more ready if, we, if and when we need to offer forgiveness in big ways. And it's not easy. I know it's not easy. But when we see forgiveness in action, when we see the freedom and healing that forgiveness can bring, there is nothing more beautiful. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to go to Los Angeles for a leadership learning event. And one of the places that my group visited was Homeboy Industries, which is focused on the rehabilitation of gang members. It was founded some 40 years ago uh, in a parish in East L.A. uh, and by their, their Jesuit priest named Father Greg Boyle. Now, I have been in a lot of nonprofits in my life, but Homeboy Industries was unlike any place I have ever been. And there's a lot to say about why that's true, but it is so beautiful in part because forgiveness is front and center of what they do. At Homeboy, gang members are able to come and they enter an 18-month training program where they get all the help they could need to help restart their life away from gangs. But sometimes it takes more than one attempt for somebody to leave a gang for good. And on our visit, we were given a tour by a guy named Omar, who had gotten help at Homeboy, and then he had returned to the streets. He said, you know, I never thought I would live to be an old man. I just assumed that I would die by street violence. I wanted to die, he told us. I I couldn't do it myself, but I kept putting myself in situations that were so risky, I was likely to die. But I didn't die. One day, he said, I realized I had gotten to an age that I never thought I'd see, which I think was like 25. And he said, all of a sudden, I realized I wanted to live. And I didn't know what that meant, but I knew where to go. So he went back to homeboy. And when he got there, he received the welcome that everyone receives when they come back, even for a second or a third or a fourth time. They didn't ask him, Omar, what have you done? Why have you failed? What laws have you broken? Who have you hurt? They simply opened their arms and they said, welcome home. We've been waiting for you. And then they helped Omar change his life. So he could, in the words of Jesus, go and sin no more. It's not that they told Omar, oh, you're fine just the way you are. Nothing needs to change. No, no, they told Omar, we love you in spite of what you've done. We love you, and we have a place for you. We don't believe that the worst thing you've done is what defines you. We want to help you let go of the past and find freedom for the future. That's the kind of forgiveness that God offers to us, the kind of forgiveness that God empowers us to offer to others. Now, I don't know who it is in your life that most needs forgiveness from you right now. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's someone you had a stupid argument with last week. Maybe it's something bigger and harder that you are struggling to forgive. Whatever the circumstances, my challenge to you this week is to pray about it. To pray to God earnestly for the gift of forgiveness. Knowing that God can work miracles in our hearts and in our lives to bring healing and freedom wherever we need it. Thanks be to God. Amen.